Good morning. And thank you, Ryan. So glad to be here with you today. And thank you for being here um, this summer Sunday to worship with us. Well, as Ryan mentioned, the uh, theme or title for today is how Jesus changes lives. We've been fortunate to see through the baptism. We had two just a moment ago. We had one at an earlier service as well. And so it's been exciting to see how Jesus changes lives. Now, change is inevitable, right? Change is a natural part of life. In all of nature, everything is either growing or dying. Nothing remains static. It's doing one or the other. Now, on the human level, of course, some of us get very excited about change, whereas others despise and avoid change wherever possible. My wife was one of those that loved change. She wanted to redecorate our home every couple of years. And what she really would have preferred is for us to buy a new home so she could have an empty pallet to, or a blank pallet to begin decorating. So um, I preferred to emphasize the concept of equity. And um, so this created some conversations for us as far as uh, how do we make both of us happy? And so oh, we had a brainstorm and compromised by having her start a very part-time interior decorating business. So therefore, uh, she got to decorate homes to her heart's content, and she was spending other people's money, which made me very happy at that point. So we figured that out. Others are more resistant to change. My dad was one of those great guy, of course, and, uh, but he was just very content with the way things were. So like, how many of you, like when you go to a restaurant, you order the exact same thing? Yeah, some of you, not too many of you, or, you know, um, you, want, you don't change anything in your room because you want to be able to walk in your sleep and get to that comfortable chair or, you know, bed or whatever, where the remote control is and that kind of stuff. Um, uh, but uh, my dad did that with his car. He would buy a car and drive it for at least 20 years. He'd end up replacing almost every part in there. And when I would drive the car for him or with him, you know, I'd get into the driver's seat and it's like he had that cushion just wedged or broken in just right. So his rear end, didn't match my rear end. Uh, so, you know, it was, you know, I was constantly having to adjust, you know, to kind of get in that right position to be able to drive his car. But I've discovered, too, that one of the reasons, the big reasons we avoid change or dislike change it's because it takes us to the unknown, doesn't it? We have take great comfort in knowing what's going to happen and what's around the corner and what's what we're getting into. Well, change disrupts all that. And on the spiritual level, we see that happening regularly. That throughout Scripture, we see God changing lives all the time. And so as Ryan said so well... Change for us spiritually should be an ongoing process. The gospel message not only is that which leads us to salvation, but the gospel message is what's continuing to help us grow in our following of Jesus Christ. And so it's ongoing. Now, once again, we resist change sometimes because we're afraid of what's the un, in the unknown or what's around the corner. One of my favorite examples of that was actually from Pastor Kevin telling a story about his daughter Elizabeth. Are you here, Elizabeth? 
where are you? There you are. Sweet. Thank you. And I owe you $5 for telling the story, okay? Uh, so anyway, um, well, your dad asked for it. I don't know if you if want it or you're going to get it. But anyway, no, but seriously, when, um, when Elizabeth was young, uh, they, mom and dad were talking to her about coming to Christ and making a decision to follow Christ. But they noticed there was some hesitation on her part. So they would talk, you know, good parents do. You know, you visit it regularly without putting any pressure on them. And so finally, they just said to her, um, a, a sense that there's some hesitation. What's holding, keeping you from uh, making that decision to follow Christ? And she said in her sweet little seven-year-old, six-year-old voice, she said, well, I'm afraid if, if I give my life to Jesus, I'm going to have to go on a Michigan trip. A Michigan trip, <laughs> yeah, you know when you go off to Africa and you tell people about Jesus and you have to do stuff and all that stuff, I said, so, oh, you mean a mission trip. Well, I would be afraid to go to Michigan too, I think, uh, <laughs> so, unless it's go see the Detroit Tigers play a baseball game or something like that. But anyway, that's true. So uh, one of my favorite youth ministry speakers when I was a youth minister was Dawson McAllister. And he had a phrase that he would say repeatedly at his conferences. And it would go like this, no Jesus, no change. No change, no Jesus. Pretty simple, isn't it? Oops, clicked it. Get back. All right. So no Jesus, no change, no change, no Jesus. What he was saying there is no real change can take place in your life without Jesus Christ creating and causing that change. But if there's no change taking place, is there really Jesus there? And so it kind of gets you from both sides, doesn't it? You know, am I really a follower of Christ? Well, has my life changed? Or am I being open to Jesus changing my life? So that's what we're going to take a look at today. We're going to look at the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, one of my favorite sections of the Bible. Because in this passage, Paul is traveling to the city of Philippi which is in the country of Macedonia at that time. Now, that's not the same Macedonia that we have in our world today, but it, Macedonia was actually northern Greece, what we would now know as northern Greece. And Philippi was a Roman colony that he traveled to. Now, there's a great backstory in the book of Acts that leads you to how God led him there. So go back and read that. That's your afternoon assignment before you take your nap today, uh, is to read that. So, um, so we're going to pick it up, Acts chapter 16, verse 13, and it reads like this. On the Sabbath... We went a little way, and we being Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, who was traveling with Paul and Silas and a few others in their little entourage there. We went a little way outside to the city, uh, outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. Okay, so here's our first person that we're going to read about, Lydia. Now, a couple of big things there. She was from Thyatira, which is in Asia, was in Asia at that time. We would now know as currently as Turkey, the country of Turkey. And Thyatira eventually had a church started there because we read about them in Revelation. That was one of the seven churches that John wrote about. 
So she was a merchant of expensive purple cloth. Well, purple cloth was the most expensive item that could be bought. So purple clothing was typically reserved for nobility or those who were very rich. And so therefore she was dealing in the good stuff. Like what would that be ladies? Like Gucci bags and Chanel, Coco Chanel and you know, all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, and so she was a very successful businesswoman. Uh, she probably had multiple homes in the world, probably had, still had one back in Thyatira, had a summer home here in Philippi, maybe some other beach homes or whatever. And, but notice here, who worshiped God. Now, once again, being from Asia, that would not have been a natural occurrence because uh, Asians would have had a very polytheistic meaning multiple gods that they would have worshipped. But somewhere along the way, she had discovered Judaism, which is uh, a monotheistic, obviously, worship. They worship the one true God. She became a Jew, basically. She converted to becoming a Jew. So she knew all about God and likely would have learned about things about the Messiah who was to come, who had been talked about, who had been foretold. So the conversation goes on. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. Well, what was Paul saying? Well, his traditional method of evangelism was to go to the local synagogue and began to engage in conversation as they opened the scriptures. And then when talk of the Messiah came about, he would say, well, that Messiah has come and I've met him and he's changed my life. And so that would lead to many different conversion experiences of Jews who became Christians. But of course, a lot of them got mad at him and they'd kick him out or, you know, throw stones at him or whatever. But she accepted what Paul was saying. Because as a Jew, she would have understood atonement for sins and that sacrifice had to be made for that atonement. But with Paul's conversation, he would have been explaining that Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice to atone for her sins. So she'd never have to make any other sacrifices because Jesus would be taking residence in her life. And so she responded so well in immediate evidence. She asked us to be her guest. She wanted them to stay with her. And if you agree that I'm a true believer in the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. So she had a very nice home, I'm sure. And she wanted to show her hospitality to them. And um, it went on to talk about how she had the same information shared with her household and many in her house got saved. Not because she got saved did they get saved. They got saved because it led to conversations due to what happened in Lydia. She said, come talk to my people here. And so what we could say about Lydia, she knew about God, but she didn't know Jesus. Because she was a very good, moral, successful person. And she probably appeared that she had no real needs. But she had the biggest need of all, which was the need to have Jesus in her life. And so we see how the big change that took place for her is that Jesus changed her life by giving her purpose. Her purpose previously had been to make lots of money, to be successful in business. 
to have lots of homes perhaps. Now her purpose had changed in that she wanted others to hear the message of Jesus. And so we've got a video of one of the ladies in our church who's kind of had a similar experience of how Jesus changed her life. But, um, you know, in reality, we never really know what people are going through. And um, underneath the smile and the happy face, lots of times there's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of heartache and just a hot mess. Life is hard. Generational sin is a thing. And Satan is a punk. And he loves to um, just try to tear down anything that is of God. For me, there was a lot of shame and pride um, from past things. And because of coming from a broken home, I did not want to have that as my legacy and um, was determined to do a better job parenting and to invest in my marriage and um, honor God and all that I did. And I think one of the things I've learned through this journey the past couple years is I was dependent a lot on Tracy and what Tracy could do and um, thought I had it because I have always been pretty much together and organized and doing everything. And, you know, you're okay until you're not okay. And um, for me, that came about um, physically, the shame and the pride showed up in um, physical things in my body eventually as um, anxiety and depression and um, just overall not taking care of myself in the way I was eating and exercising and sleeping. And so it got to a point where I was very fearful and I had never dealt with anxiety before. Um, in his kindness, um, the Holy Spirit just guided me one step at a time. And what I've learned is, um, you know, there's so many times in the Bible where it says, do not fear. And fear is a liar. And um, fear wants you to isolate and separate and think that you're the only one. Um, but when I could put my trust in Jesus and depend on him and step into that fear, that's when I got the courage to do the next right thing he was calling me to do. And um, in doing that, he led me to godly counsel. Um, he led me to an amazing um, supportive small group of women who came around me and prayed for me. And um, I was able to let the walls down and be vulnerable because it was a safe place to do that. And um, in doing so, you get stronger and you get more courage to do the next right thing that he's calling you to do through godly counsel and through just being in the word and um, worshiping when there's literally nothing else I could do. Um, he just shows up. And so through that, I've learned that I can trust him and that my identity is in who he says I am and not any other role that I have. Um, I can show him in and through those roles, but ultimately I am a daughter of the King and I am chosen and I am dearly loved and I am valued and a precious treasure. Isn't that great? 
Uh, Tracy was like Lydia in some ways there. Now, Lydia obviously experienced a conversion experience with Jesus at that point with Paul. But Lydia, excuse me, (laughs) but Tracy, she was already a Christian when some of these things began to tangle her up and her struggle. But then Jesus changed her life by setting her free from those things and giving her a new purpose as well. So let's go to the second experience that we have described here, starting with verse 16. So one day, as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a demon-possessed slave girl. She was a fortune teller who earned a lot of money for her masters. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. Isn't it interesting that a demon's telling them that? Uh, This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Okay, so picture this. We have a young girl who is actually demon possessed. Um, And you think this girl had issues? Think about it. First of all, she was sold into slavery by her parents. So her parents gave up on her, and there was more value in selling her for money than to continue to try to raise her. So talk about being abandoned by your parents. And so then now she had these owners, and basically she was one of the early victims of human trafficking, we might say, though, of course, it's probably been going on for all time. And so she's making money for her new masters, so to speak. And so this is the situation that she's dealing with. So in her own search for significance, she was probably dabbling in a little bit of everything, whether it was alcohol uh, or whatever imagine could have, could have happened. It's something to fill that void in her life. And so when that is often the case, if Jesus is not the one being sought after, a demon is glad to come in and take that position there. And so then as, as Paul and Silas and the Luke and the others are walking through the city, she starts, the demon within her starts shouting out that these are men of God. She recognizes their authority and they will tell you how to be saved. But this went on for days. And so you'd almost think, well, why did Paul get exasperated with her? Well, he didn't need no demon (laughs) validating his ministry or his message about Jesus. He knew that the message of Jesus Christ validated itself without any other help. And so therefore, he wanted her just to be quiet and her, her interruptions were probably affecting his other work, his other evangelism that he was trying to accomplish. And so I love that it was described because he's a man just like the rest of us. He got exasperated and said, enough is enough. And he cast that demon out and immediately the demon left and the girl was basically useless to her masters. Well, that upset him. And then we'll see in just a minute what took place here. But very easily we can see that Jesus changed this girl's life by setting her free. Those things that had captivated her, that had her in bondage, were totally removed. And to a degree, that's what we saw with Tracy. Those attitudes and those, the anxiety that she fought with, she was set free from that. Well, we have another great story I want you to watch here. Man, I was raised by good parents who tried hard to make me uh, a 
asset to society. But my flesh and my nature took over and I made a lot of bad choices. Everything from alcohol to drugs to stealing to fighting. At one point I joined a motorcycle club known as the Outlaws Motorcycle Club. It's a one percenter club for those that don't know and as a result of joining that club and some of the other decisions that I made as part of that, I wound up under federal indictment for two years. During that two years, that was the darkest part of my life. I spent every day hoping that the day would get through, but I knew that trial was looming. And so while I wanted to get through the day, I didn't want to get any closer to trial. Finally, the day of trial happens, and after four days of prosecutor testimony, the judge banged the gavel that no crime had been committed. I was set free. At that point, I should have been thanking God. Unfortunately, that's not what I did. I continued down that path, and about a year later, some things had happened, and I just knew the FBI was coming back to kick in my door. Under the fear of going back to court and being under indictment again, I left the Outlaws Motorcycle Club. About six months later, after writing down all of the things that I had done in an attempt to carry it to a psychiatrist to get some help, I had a heart attack. I believe that the weight of the sin and the shame and the regret that of, of all the things in my life had brought me to a point to where that I finally faced it and facing it, I believe, brought on my heart attack. Shortly after that, within the next three days, I woke up with, a, with three things in my life. One, to find a church where I felt like I was hearing the gospel for the first time. The second thing was to find Christian people to come alongside of me, just like I did to find people to do illegal things with. And the third thing was to walk through any door that God put in front of me. I used these three things and it brought me to Northway. Here with the guidance of the people here and the love of the people here, Jesus Christ began to work in my life in a way that I had never known before. I knew of Jesus Christ, but I didn't know him. I had a lot of biblical context of him, but no relationship with him. Through being part of this church and the community that is here, along with the Celebrate Recovery community, I developed that relationship with Jesus Christ. And because of that relationship, my life is radically different. Jesus Christ changed my life. Now I'm active in church. I'm leading two CRs. I minister to a rehab down in Dublin. I'm speaking, I'm being asked to speak and give my testimony different places. And with all this, be, all that being said, without Jesus Christ in a relationship with him, I'd be left to my own devices. That's powerful stuff there. All right, so notice the difference here. When Paul was speaking with Lydia, he appealed to her reason because she knew enough of the Bible and the scriptures to be able to appeal to her and says, hey, Jesus is the answer. He's the Messiah that you've been looking for. But then with the demon-possessed girl, there was no reason to 
to contend with because there was no basis there. It wasn't like he'd said, hey, we need you to come, we want you to visit our church. We're just starting a new home team for crazy demon-possessed women, and we would love to, for you to come be a part of that. No, that didn't work. It took a demonstration of Holy Spirit power for her to be set free. Amen? And that's what Sean experienced, I think, to a large degree through the circumstances that he traveled through. It took Holy Spirit power to make that happen. Well, here's the final one. You know, after the demon had been cast out and the girl could no longer do her fortune telling, the owners uh, got upset with Paul and, and they went to the magistrate, said, we need to throw these guys in jail. So later in Acts chapter 16, we have this. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Okay, so quick scenario here. The jailer was probably a retired military veteran, a grizzled war soldier who had been through lots uh, in his life, but his value in life was all centered around what he did and his ability to be able to follow orders. That's how he measured his significance. And so as long as he was doing that, he was good to go. He had no other needs. He thought he was fine. So his house was probably either connected to the jail or next door to the jail for him to have gotten there so quickly after the earthquake. But the only thing he had to do was to make sure none of these prisoners escaped. Because as he demonstrated in the verses there, for any prisoner to escape was immediately punishable by death. So he was basically saving the authorities a lot of time by pulling his sword and being willing to kill himself. But Paul and Silas yelled out to him, said, no, we're still here. We have not left. So notice his reaction. Of course, he ran down to the dungeon uh, and fell down trembling before them and said, then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? If somebody came to you and asked you that question, what would you tell them? Here's your answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. Now, that's, to be clear, his salvation was not going to get his other family members saved, but it would open up conversations. He'd say, come, talk to my kids, talk to my wife, talk to the, those that work in my house here. And so there's your answer to the gospel. And so um, it says, and they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. And notice they all responded. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. That's what we did today. They, they responded to the gospel message because they'd never seen anything like this before. And so while Paul appealed to the reasoning of Lydia because of her religious background, 
And while it was a demonstration of Holy Spirit power with the girl that was demon-possessed, here it was neither one of those things. The only reason we can see that the jailer likely responded to the message of Paul and Silas so quickly is because they saw it lived out. Paul and Silas lived out their faith. Now, if you had just been beaten and thrown into the bottom of a jail, would you be likely be having a prayer meeting down there and singing praises to God? Probably not. You might be cussing at the jailer and everybody else that was there, but they just continued to pray and to praise God for their circumstances. It's amazing as it was. So, but it spoke to the jailer because he was all about doing good, doing what you're supposed to be doing. And so when he saw how Paul and Silas lived out their faith, that is what communicated the gospel to him. So there's got to be something different about these guys. That's why he asked them, what do I do to be saved? And so then we have what we might surmise here. Um, they rejoice greatly in having believed in God with his whole household. And so Jesus changed his life by extending grace. He no longer had to earn his way to be accepted by God, if that was even a thought of his. It wasn't hard work that was going to do it. It was by the grace of God, by knowing that Jesus Christ had already paid the price for his sin, and there was nothing else he had to do except trust Jesus and receive that gift. Now, that's not the end of the story. Because even though Paul and Silas eventually moved on to the other cities in northern Greece and then the rest of Greece, these people were left here in Philippi. So what did they do? Were they just left to flounder on their own? Of course not. They became church planters. Isn't that crazy? Here you had a rich businesswoman a girl, a teenage girl that was previously demon-possessed, and now this grizzled, hard war veteran, and all their families and all their household, they became the nucleus for the church at Philippi. Who would have made a church that way? Would have gone that route. But that's what happened. And so about 10 years later, Paul writes a letter to the church at Philippi. We know it as the book of Philippians. And so he tells them this in the first chapter, verse 6. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it or complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He was reminding them, hey, just because you got saved, that's not the end of the story. There's still so much more in store for you. And that's where some of us as followers of Christ get stuck sometimes. We don't want to change or we feel comfortable where we are. Maybe because we're fearful of what's down the road. If I get more serious in my walk with Christ, is he going to ask me to do something I don't want to do? Well, that's part of the excitement of following Christ. And he's not going to ask you to do something that he hasn't equipped you for. So it's, it's, it, Paul's reminding him, hey, there's so much more that's coming. For I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it or complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So that's why Jesus still changes lives. He wants to get us not only from conversion, 
but to keep growing in, in our discipleship and our, what it means to follow Christ. So he can use us in all these different areas. And many of you are that way. You got saved and then God has continued to sh- shape you and mold you and use you to do ministry in ways that you probably never imagined. And so that's how Jesus changes lives. He not only did it when he got us saved, but he continues to do that. So we just pray that you will continue to be open to that. That's what we as a church are all about. We can create those environments in which you can have that happen.